Please take your Bible this morning and turn to the 12th chapter of Romans. We've been preaching through the book of Romans for the past year, year and a half, three years, four years. We've been there a while. I remember I was in Jackson, Alabama, and we had a little guy. He was sweet. He had cerebral palsy, and Lauren was there every Sunday. And I was preaching through Matthew, and he came up one day, Brother Keith, are we ever going to finish Matthew? And yes, we did. We came to the end. And, but we're, we're getting to what I consider, uh, well, it's all been good, right? Amen? But if you've been with us, we, we started out in, in Romans chapter 1 through 8, and we see there uh, God's righteousness discla- declared. God's righteousness declared. And, and really, the theme of the book of Romans is Romans one seventeen. I want us to look at that. Paul says, in it, the gospel The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So that's what the book of Romans is all about, the righteousness of God. In chapters 1 through 8, it's been declared. This is how we can be righteous with God, by faith, by God's grace. And then, you know, as Paul was writing the letter to the church at Rome, they got to looking around and said, you know, there are very few Jewish believers. And the Jews had historically been opposed to the gospel. So what about the Jews? Has God forgotten his promises to the Jews? Has God forsaken his people? So chapters 9 through 11 remind us that God has not. So we see there the righteousness of God defended to the Jews primarily. We just finished that. Pastor Colby finished that last Sunday. So today we, be, we begin a new section in the book of Romans where the righteousness of God is displayed. It's put on display through the life of his people, through us. And so this is the good part. It's all been good, but this is the good part. So let's look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is where we'll concentrate this morning. Are we working up there or we're working? Okay. All right, great. There we go. All right, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, a, your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and Lord, indeed, eyes to see and hearts to obey the gospel this morning and to hear your word, Lord, and to know that God, your word is truth. Give us a heart, Father, that's undivided. Lord, unite our hearts to fear thy name, to obey your word. Father, incline our hearts toward your word this morning that, Lord, as we would be prone to, as the hymn writer said, prone to wander, but prone to be distracted this morning. Lord, incline our hearts toward your word that we might hear a message from you. And then, Lord, as the Lord Jesus said, that we could be satisfied Father, from your word, feed us this morning, God. Give us the spiritual food that we so desperately need from your word today. And Lord, we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled the message this morning, A Living Sacrifice, with a question mark there. 
You know, even the casual Bible reader knows that when you look at the Bible and you talk about sacrifice, you talk about what? Death. A sacrifice is usually offered on an altar. The blood is shed, the life is taken from the animal. And so this morning, Paul is telling us that as believers, we need to be living sacrifices. As one writer said, it would literally be a living killing, a living killing. How can we be a living sacrifice? Well, Paul tells us how we can do that. And one of the questions that came to my mind, and I'm sure if you're just looking at scripture, you'd say, why? Why would you want to be a living sacrifice? So Paul deals with the how and the why. And he begins in chapter 12, verse 1, with a therefore, okay? And so when you see therefore, you need to go back and see why the, what it's there for, as we have said, and you've heard preachers say that all along. But there's, there's a reason for us to become living sacrifices. And so Paul tells us that as we think about what he's already said in the previous 11 chapters, that there's a response to that. There's a response to the truth of God. As a matter of fact, you know, as preachers, we should always preach for response. We should always preach for response because God's word is powerful. God is sending us a message, an eternal message, and we need to respond. We need to respond to God's word every day as we read God's word in our personal quiet time or devotion time. So Paul says there's a response that's necessary. But when, when we think about being a living sacrifice, Paul says that there's a reason why we should be that sacrifice. And it's based on what he's already told us. And it's based on the fact that God has been gracious to us. God has been gracious to us. And he'll give, be more specific in just a moment when he talks about the mercies of God. But, but here's where I want to do kind of part of my introduction. The way we think about God, what we believe about God, impacts the way we respond to God. It's been said that what we believe impacts the way we behave, okay? Now, it puts a burr in my saddle every time I hear a preacher say, theology's not important. Theology's not important. I've heard that. And I, I think I know what they mean. We don't try to present one theology or another. But let me tell you this. This is a quote by E.W. Tozier. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now think about that for just a minute. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. See, if you see God as some grandfatherly figure that has, you know, just all oh, boys will be boys, it's going to impact the way you behave. If you think of God as a policeman figure who got one rule, you can't have any fun, you have fun, and bam, told you not to do that, didn't I? There are a lot of people who think about God in those terms. So what you believe about God impacts how you behave or how you live your life. And this is so important in our study this morning. But what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. A.W. Tozier said that. Kobe Mouché last week said this. A.W. Tozier, Kobe Mouché. Doctrines, <laughs> doctrines that exalt God lead to great joy. And that's where I want us to go this morning. When we look at being a living sacrifice, if we understand it properly and what God, who God is, what he's done for us, the natural response is a response of joy. Yeah. 
God, you're so good. You're so awesome. I want to live my life for you. So I'm going to use five key words from our passage this morning, and we'll look at each one. And we're going to begin with one in uh, verse one, and that is our motivation, what we're talking about. What prompts me to present my body as a living sacrifice to God? What would prompt anyone to do that? Why? Well, as I said, Paul says, therefore, based on all that God, that Paul has told us about who God is, the natural response is one of surrender. The natural response is one of commitment. We go back through the book of Romans because of God's grace in justification. Wow. Because of God's grace in sanctification, who can set us free from this body of sin? Because of God's grace and our future glorification, all creation moans right and groans right now under the presence and power of sin. One day, as we are redeemed, I mean, the redemption is complete. Our glorification takes place. We'll receive glorified bodies because of his grace and glorification, because of his grace and giving us his Holy Spirit. We saw that in Romans chapter eight, but as many as are led by the spirit of God, they're children of God. And so God has given us his spirit because of his grace. And you, you could just go back to chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Because God is awesome. Because there's no other God like him. In response to that, we are to be living sacrifices. So what does Paul say? Brethren, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. The New International Version says, in light of the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Our motivation is the fact of God's mercies. God's mercies toward us. Lamentations. There's a great preacher preaching tonight from Lamentations 3. He may be here with Drew Tunnell. Is Drew here? Somewhere? Drew? Okay. All right. Preaching tonight from Lamentations 3. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God's mercies toward us demand a response of loving obedience. See, our loving obedience is a response to what God has already done for us. Now, if you don't understand this, if you don't understand what God has done for us in Christ, then there can be a lot of confusion. There can be a lot of discouragement. And there can even become uh, resentment in our heart. If we think that God will show me mercy because I obey him, then we're going to have a frustrated Christian life. If we think somehow we have to earn God's mercies, then we're going to be discouraged, even resentful. But Paul says not to earn God's mercies, but because God has been merciful to us in view of his mercies, I urge you, brethren, 
to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice because of his mercy. There's our motivation. Love God and obey his word. Live the Christian life because of his mercy toward you. Christian living, Paul says, is founded on our having received grace and our understanding of grace. This is how the Bible teaches us to think about God, that he first loved us. We're saved by his grace. Paul says our response to God's mercy toward us is loving obedience, total dedication to become a living and holy sacrifice. That's our motivation. Church, there's no other motivation than the fact that God has been merciful toward us. The second word would be presentation. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. So the question would be, how do I do that? How do I present my body to God as a living sacrifice? I want to talk about three aspects of this presentation that kind of help us understand what Paul's talking about. First of all, it's personal, okay? It's personal. And remember, as we combine these terms, living and holy sacrifice, we're talking about a living, dying, living, dying. The, the sacrifice that God requires or our response to his mercies is one that would be a personal sacrifice. God, what you have done for me. I remember we have university students here back in 1975. A guy named Terry Cook would come by my dorm room every Friday morning and he would disciple me and he was with the navigators. And he took me through this system called the TMS, Topical Memory System. And the first verse we memorized was 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The second one was Galatians 2, 20, which says, I am crucified with Christ. Now, what does that mean? I am what? Alive or dead? Talk to me now, okay? We're dead. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. If you're a Christian here today, say that with me. Christ lives in me, but I am dead. And that's the personal sacrifice that is required here. If I'm going to present my body as a living and holy sacrifice, then I have to realize that it's me that he's talking about. It's a personal dying to myself. Jesus said in Luke that if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So this sacrifice is very personal in nature. I've been crucified with Christ. We present ourselves and surrender totally to his will. I die and he lives in me. Now that's what the Christian life is all about. Someone has said that salvation is a free gift that costs you everything. It is. We die to ourselves. If any man come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. But you know, the way we do that, Christ lives in us. How does he do that? With his spirit. His Holy Spirit lives in us. That's why Paul said in Romans 8, 13, if by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So again, as we're talking this morning, remember God's grace, God's mercies, what, what he's done for us. And we, it's not that we're gonna hear a message this morning where we're to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and go do better. No, it's loving, a loving response of obedience that he empowers us to do by his spirit, by his spirit. It's personally, you know, Paul says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you and that the temple of God is holy? 
I mean, that's pretty personal in it. God dwells in me. Christ lives in me. So it's a personal sacrifice. It's a physical sacrifice. Notice, present your bodies. I emphasize that when we read because it's so important. Paul's already told us in chapter 6 of Romans 13, 6, 13, he said, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members, your body members as instruments of righteousness. This is where it gets very physical. You know, it's so common to hear people say, I gave my heart to Jesus. We did Great. I'm glad you gave your heart to Jesus, but that's not all he wants. He wants your mind. He wants your ears. He wants your eyes. He wants your nose. He wants your mouth. He wants your hands. He wants your feet. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. There was one woman who had a problem with her tongue, and she was known in that little church as a gossip, a terrible gossip. So one morning, this gossiping woman came forward during the invitation, told the preacher, said, preacher, I want to put my tongue on the altar. And the preacher said, our altar's only 12 foot long, but do the best you can. (laughs) God wants every part of our body, okay? You know, it's funny because we think, yeah, I gave my heart to Jesus, but some people think, it's okay to sleep with my girlfriend. It's okay to sleep with my boy. It's okay to abuse my body with alcohol or drugs. It's okay to fill my mind with pornography. It's okay to fill my ears with junk. Junk in, junk out. Paul's very specific here. He says that we, he wants a physical sacrifice. If you're a Christian, your body belongs to the Lord. You've been bought with a price, Paul said. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And again, this leads to the third aspect. This is a very practical sacrifice. It's very practical. It's so practical that we live it out every day. We live it out every day. Every day we present our bodies to the Lord. Every day we surrender. Lord, use my hands to serve others. And again, it's not just what we stay away from. You know, it's what Baptists are known, what we're against. (laughs) But it's what we do with our bodies. We present our hands to serve the Lord. Lord, use my mouth to communicate your truth, your love. Lord, use my feet to go to others who are hurting. It's very practical in it when you think about it. I present my body to the Lord on a daily basis. When that happens, Paul says, this pleases God. It pleases God. Notice that. To present your body as a living, holy, and sacrifice. living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. This pleases God when we do that. And also, it says, it is your spiritual service of worship. It pleases God, and it's an act of worship. So we see that what Paul's talking about here is not a one-time event. This is something we do daily. Daily, we commune with God in worship through our living sacrifice. We experience worship in his presence wherever we are as we daily present our body. I mean, isn't it a great feeling and thought to know that you and I could do something that would please God? I don't know about you, but that just kind of gets me excited. I guess one of my major faults is I'm a people pleaser, but I want to please God. 
And to present my body to God on a daily basis, know that that's, no, I can know that's acceptable to God. It pleases God. And then it's an act of worship. And then I can worship God right there with my cup of coffee on my back porch as I present my body to him on a daily basis. Now, I know what some people are going to say. Aha, preacher said we don't have to come to church to worship. You don't. Personal worship, I encourage it. I'm a big fan. Do it every day, wherever you are. But you need corporate worship as well. We're going to look at that next week in verses 3 through 8, okay? You know, people say, well, I, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. Which I love Jesus, but I don't like his bride. Don't you say that to me. You don't like my bride. You don't like me. <laughs> so we, we see this, but we can worship God. We, we please God as we present our bodies to him you know, on a daily basis, personally, physically, and practically. We do this every day. So there's a word there about presentation. Notice what he says, that when we do that, we become a living and holy sacrifice. What does the word holy mean? Set apart, set apart. That leads us to our third word, separation, where Paul says in verse two, and do not be conformed to this world. We're to be different from the world. To be conformed to the world. There are two questions I want to answer for you. What does it mean to be conformed? And what are we talking about the world, okay? To be conformed means that we are, Paul encourages us, do not cave in to the external pressures of the world, okay? Do not cave in, do not be conformed. Let me give you an official designation here. To be conformed means that we give in to the external pressure of the world. We assume an outward expression that doesn't come from within. We assume an outward expression that does not come from within. One of the greatest tragedies on the seas happened at April, on April the 10th, 1963. There was a U.S. naval submarine, a nuclear submarine by the name of the USS Thresher. And it was 200 miles off the coast of Cape Cod doing some diving maneuvers and testing out. It was a relatively new submarine. But as the USS Thresher was going down below 1,800 feet, there was a sound. The USS Skylark was, on the, was off the coast there monitoring the submarine test. And there came a sound over the, uh, the sonar operators heard a sound that said it, sa- it was a chilling sound like air rushing into an t- air tank. And in an instant, the USS Thresher was gone. 129 men perished in an instant. The official report said that some of the bulkhead on the submarine had not been properly welded. So when the ship got down to a certain depth, the welding gave way under the pressure. Tragedy. By the way, it changed the way submarines were built from that point on. But that's a tragic and extreme example of of caving in to pressure. The pressure was too great. And there are many, many people who started, many Christians who start out and we find, we go off to the university. I, I remember coming here as a freshman in 1975 and I'd grown up in Evergreen, Alabama. And as I tell everybody, you know, I, I always went, I started going to church nine months before I was born. You know, being a pew, I always felt right at home in the church. Okay. Those are my two standard jokes. But when I got to the university of Alabama, it was like a fork in the road. 
you know, I can go this way or I can go that way. And so I kind of started going this way with some buddies and we went to some parties and places. Then I realized, hey, that's not for me. That's not for me. And then a guy began to disciple me and began to equip me and shared the gospel with him. And really, for the first time, I gave my heart to Christ. And I realized that's not the way I want to go. And I could have easily, like so many freshmen, like so many upper class, caved into the pressures, like so many men in the business world, like so many women in in their society, in their world, at home and in business, cave in to the pressure and ultimately destroyed as they walk away from the gospel because the world has caught their eye. And that, okay, what are we talking about, the world? Are we talking about birds, bees, flowers, and trees, the world? No. Are we talking about people? No. Paul says, don't be conformed to the world. The world is a godly, excuse me, a godless system which says you don't need God. It's a godless system. The world, John says, do not love the world nor the things of the world. So the world tells us you don't need God. And for young people, the, you know, the world says God will ruin you. If you give your heart to God, you got to sell your TV, go to Africa as a missionary and die of mosquito bites. You know, that God's going to ruin you. Marry a girl that doesn't even kiss. And then, you know, there's, there's nothing but heartache. That's what the world says about God. It's a godless system. Without going into great detail, Paul says, do not be conformed to the world. The priorities of the world are pretty simple. Fame, fortune, power, and pleasure. Fame, fortune, power, and pleasure. What's wrong with these things? Nothing in and of themselves. But when they become our God, they will destroy us. They will destroy us. And the worst thing about fame, fortune, power, and pleasure, they can become our treasure. And because they become our treasure, they keep us from pursuing the true treasure of life, the real treasure of life. Don't be conformed to these priorities. Don't waste your life in pursuit of things that will never truly satisfy. Paul sums up the world, I think, pretty clearly in Philippians 3, 18, where he says, For many walk of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies, enemies of the cross of Christ. And the world is very aggressive against the things of God. They are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Boy, Paul says a mouthful there, but just that whole thing, their God is their appetite. What controls them? A desire, a hunger for more fame, fortune, power, and pleasure. I mean, so many people are there just hungry for pleasure. They'll give their soul for pleasure. They'll give their soul for fortune. Their God is their appetite. Their appetite is their God whose end is destruction. Thankfully, we know the outcome. We're called to be different. In Jesus, through the gospel, we're we're called to separate ourselves. There's separation because Jesus is the true treasure. And that's what we see in the fourth word here, transformation. Do not be conformed to this world, Paul says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, Paul doesn't just tell us to be different. He tells us how to be different. Now, I like that. I'm pretty simple. You know, don't tell me to to fix my oven or don't tell me to fix my washer. Tell me how to fix my washer. 
You know, I don't know. I need to know. How do you do this? Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be like the world. Resist the pressure to be conformed, to cave into the pressure of the world. And here's how you do it. You have your mind transformed. See, being transformed is so different from being conformed. While being conformed happens from the outside in, it's that external pressure. Listen to me. Transformation takes place from the inside out. The Greek word for transformed is metamorphosis, which takes us back to our elementary science class. You remember that? The butterfly, a caterpillar, is transformed into a butterfly. You know why? Because that's what he's created to be. Wasn't created to be a caterpillar all his life. So he's transformed from the inside out. He becomes a beautiful butterfly. Tadpoles, I was kind of infatuated with tadpoles when I was a kid. We had a creek in our backyard, and I'd catch tadpoles and crawfish and frogs. But those tadpoles, I'd catch them and put them in a jar and watch them turn into frogs. They'd start sprouting legs, tadpoles, front, back legs, front legs. Then they lose their tail, and they become a frog a frog. It's like the guy was playing golf with one day and he found a frog and the frog jumped out of the pond. He'd hit the ball down there and the frog jumped up and said, kiss me now. I'll be a beautiful princess. The guy picked it up and put it in his pocket. I said, man, didn't you hear what that frog said? Kiss me and I'll be a beautiful princess. He said, at my age, I'd rather have a talking frog. But, uh, <laughs> so it, it begins with your priority, but metamorphosis. Okay. Changing. God wants, here's the key about transformation. God changes us from the inside out. How? Because he's given us a new heart, a new heart. We don't, and I said, he gives us how to, we don't have to cave into the external pressure because from the inside out, we're being changed. When we trust Christ, we have a new heart. And so now we're going to be conformed, all right, from glory to glory to the image of his son. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that we have been predestined to be like his son. And so we're simply becoming what God has created or recreated us to be. And how do we do that? By having a change of mind. Look, 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that we should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. It goes back to the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. We don't have to think like the world, church. We don't have to be caught up in that spin cycle. We don't have to be caught up in that rat trap. We're different because God has changed our mind. You know, all of the Christian life is repentance. And repentance simply means to have a change of mind. Have a change of mind about our sin. Have a change of mind about the direction we're going in. And so, but we have the mind of Christ. I, I love this old illustration. You know, if I were a heart patient and I needed a heart transplant, and someone were to be critically injured, then they could do a heart transplant and give me a new heart. They would die and I would live. If it were possible to do a brain transplant and I needed a brain transplant, then we'd wait for a donor. And that donor met specifications or qualifications and they did the surgery and they put his brain in my body. I would die and he would live. He'd have a new body. This body would have a new mind, a new brain. That's how radical God wants us to be. We have the mind of Christ. Our minds are transformed by his spirit, 
by his word. Our minds are renewed by the word of God. Paul says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. The battle for the mind, our minds are to be renewed every day. So we say no to the world and its priorities. We say yes to the Lord and his will for our life. When we do that, we can become a living and holy sacrifice. And God is pleased. And we can worship and we find joy, real, genuine joy. And the last word is demonstration. Paul says that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice that. You may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The key word there is prove. Proof. When we present ourselves to God in response to his mercy, we love because he first loved us. We consider the mercies of God and we say the only reasonable response, as he said there, our spiritual or reasonable service of worship, the only reasonable response is loving obedience. When we do that, we become different. We're not conformed to the world. And then the world will see the reality of of the gospel. You and I will be a living demonstration of the goodness of God, the mercies of God. You and I begin to be a living demonstration of the greatness of God, that God in himself is what we truly need. Fame and fortune and power and pleasure, those are terrible gods. They lead to destruction. They lead to anxiety. Can never have enough of any of them. But when we know the true living God, our life will be a demonstration of what true treasure is all about. All about. We are living proof of his will for his people, for the world to see. As we walk in the spirit, we show the world how precious Christ is by the way we gratefully and lovingly serve him. John Piper said, If we look like our lives are devoted to getting and maintaining things, we will look like the world, and that will not make Christ look great. Christ, he will look like a religious side interest that may be useful for escaping hell in the end, but he doesn't make much difference in what we live for and love here. He will not He will not look like an all-satisfying treasure. If we live like the world, we don't make Christ look great. But if we live as a living and holy sacrifice, the world's going to say, you know, there's something different. There's something different. We're going to be a demonstration of God's will for the life of his people. Our lifestyle will point others to Christ. Our response to life's challenges, how we respond points others to the sufficiency of Christ. Hey, my world does not revolve around fame, fortune, power, and pleasure. If your world does, you're in a heap of trouble when bad things come. If you don't understand the mercies of God and you're trying to, to live a life that will somehow please God, then when difficulties come, you're going to be blown out of the water. 
If we think of God in the wrong concept, we don't see God for his grace and his mercy toward us. It could lead to some serious resentment. But when we understand the gospel, that God saves us by grace, and as a response, our loving obedience is out of gratitude for what he's done for us. Christ is made to look great. Christ is made to look great. We're going to come in just a moment to the Lord's table. This is a picture of what we've talked about this morning. Christ died for us. His body was broken. His blood was shed because he loved us. He paid the penalty of our sin. He offers to each one of us forgiveness of our sin. Christ died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he could bring us to God. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's why we're coming to the table. But this morning, if you're here and you don't know, if you don't know Christ, if you don't have a personal relationship with God, you can say, well, I'm going to leave here and I'm going to become a sacrifice. I'm going to die to my TV and my girlfriend and my drugs. and all. No, no, no. No. You've got to die to yourself and live to Christ. That's the gospel. We confess our sin. Christ takes our, has taken our place on the cross. He comes into our life as we trust him to be our Lord and Savior. And he lives his life through us, through the power of his spirit giving us new life in his name. You can't muster that up on your own. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the gospel this morning. God, we thank you for the call you have on our life to become a living and holy sacrifice.